Hail and well met. You must be today's passengers. Well, welcome aboard, welcome aboard. Your cabin is right this way. You'll find it all well stocked, ready for you. If I can just check your tickets, yes? Okay, everything seems to be in order. And who am I? Well, I'm Drew Broussard. I'll be your host, your guide, your tour guide, as we embark on an intrepid voyage, a voyage into genre. that I don't quite know where to start this week's episode. It's been, well, I feel like I've said this before, this season, last season, season before that, but it's been a hell of a time, hasn't it? Somewhat fitting, then, I suppose, that the two authors who I talked to this week have both written books about trauma, in a way, about the struggle to grapple with very difficult experiences, and very difficult feelings. It's astonishing how terrible people can be to one another, to themselves, to the planet. But it is also remarkable how beautiful they can be to themselves, to each other, to the planet. At the beginning of this season, Chuck Tingle mentioned his idea of the trinity of maligned genre, comedy, romance, and horror. Today, Fittingly enough, for spooky season, we're looking at the third once more. If you know me, and I think at this point many of you know me even a little bit, I have a fascination with horror. The things that it can tell us about ourselves, about our fears, how it can help us process those things. It can be fun, too, don't get me wrong. And both of these books are a blast. They are fun to read. And they are scary. And they are emotionally complex. And I think that is just as important as these books being scary, that they deal with big emotions. They show us how messy it is, how complicated it is to be a human being, to be alive. It's messy and complicated and difficult, even if you're not dealing with a creepy haunted house or running for your life in some sort of Japanese netherworld game. Speaking of, What say we start there? Down by the river, an interesting deck of cards, and suddenly we are transported to Mado. Kristen Simmons is a critically acclaimed young adult author of more than a dozen books, including the Article 5 trilogy, the Deceivers series, and the Glass Arrow. Her writing is inspired by her work with trauma survivors as a mental health therapist. She lives with her husband and son in Cincinnati, Ohio, where she spins stories, herds a small pack of semi-wild dogs, and teaches jazzercise. Her new book, the first in the Death Games duology, is called Find Him Where You Left Him Dead. It is a YA novel, yes, but it is one of the scariest things that I have read this year. There's a log line on the jacket copy that it's sort of a Japanese-inspired Jumanji, and that's true. Four years ago, there were five kids who started playing a game, a strange game that they were pulled into. Only four of them survived. Those four 
scattered, fractured, their friendship lost in the unimaginable trauma of losing a friend. But now, at the end of their senior year of high school, they have come back together because the friend who they left for dead has shown up as a ghost, calling them to come back, to come find him. The world that they find themselves thrust into is an absolutely terrifying game. Is it a game? Is it something more than that? It is pulse-pounding and also a richly imagined look at just how hard it is to grapple with your emotions, whether you are a grown-up or a teenager. Did I mention it's scary? It's really fucking scary. And that was the first thing I had to bring up to Kristen when we sat down to talk about, well, the scary of it all. When I tell people about this, they a lot of people will say, like, how scary is it? How scary do you think it is? And I always tell them, you know what? Actually, I just think it's kind of gross. <laughs> because, and what I mean by that is, I, I think a lot of horror is based on uh, like hiding the scary things, right? Like, you know something's wrong, but you don't know quite what it is. I feel like this book just gives that all to you. I give you the monsters. I give you the yokai. I give you the oni. It is right there on the page. And I think that that is something that I've always loved in stories and loved in intelligent shows and movies, everything. I always like knowing, I mean, even if I don't know who the bad guys are at first, I want to know that the evil presence is there. I can see it. I can touch it. I can run from it. And so that is what I gave you in this book. Something to be scared of that you that you know about from the get-go. I mean, talk about from the get-go. This book goes from zero to 60 in like a page. And I really loved how disorienting that was. Like, I mean, it's certainly disorienting and exhausting for our heroes. But in a positive way, there's this feeling to the reader of just being like, Oh man, a lot is going on and I am so hooked into it. There's something scary about that, actually. There's something scary for a a reader just, you know, needing to pick up on what's going on from context clues. And actually, to, to mix my metaphors a little bit, it was making me think of a game, of a video game, where you're dropped into the middle of it and you need to learn how to play the game while you are in the middle of it. And that felt like that's true for the characters, certainly, but it's also true for the reader. I was just in awe of it. I want to know how you did it. Well, I I will say a lot of that happened in editing because the first draft of it was much more drawn out, was much longer. And one thing I talked to my editor, Ali, a lot about was like how to tighten this up to the point where there's just no fat on the bone, right? It's just go, go, go for the pacing and that every visceral response is just right there, ready to go. There's no wondering. There's no wandering. It's just immediate. I mean, we talk about it being like Jumanji, right? How they how they literally like drop into it. Mm-hmm. That that is a lot of what's happening in this book. Like they start the game by falling into it, and it's go time. Something is after them. They gotta go. They gotta figure out how to beat it. They gotta go level by level. What did the early drafts look like? Like, what yeah. was your process of? teaching yourself the rules of the game. Yeah. Part of that was actually figuring out how to play it, right? We spent a lot of time looking at the mechanics of the game itself. How yeah. would I play? How will the characters play? And this is a game that is built on a level system. So you do a task, you get a prize, you move to the next level. 
you do a task, you get a prize, you move to the next level. You're also leveling up, so it gets worse and scarier, and you might die every <laughs> level, right? Like things are getting worse and worse until you get to that final boss battle at the end. So part of it was actually figuring out the game mechanics itself. And then the other part was just going over it again and just skimming off all of the extraneous material. I can't tell you how many times my editor was like, tighter, 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 take it out, tighter. And to the point where I was like, but just one more description. No, tighter, <laughs> skim it off, skim it off. And, it, and she's so right. Like, it really does leave you just raw, right? Like there's no cushion. Yeah, I have not stopped thinking about that aspect of it since I read it. Tell me a little bit more, if you would, about GameCraft, if that makes sense. Like the ways that you were building these levels where everything does feel increasingly bad and increasingly scary and each one is ratcheting up and pulling the rug out a little bit more and the reader is always a little bit behind the ball. And then on top of that, you're really entwining Japanese mythology in such a fun way. And in such a scary way. One, one thing that I thought a lot about prior to writing this was the difference between Eastern and Western ideas of ghosts. Japanese horror is, is very scary. And one of the things that I think is the absolute scariest about Japanese ghosts, about yokai and all the yokai stories, is that they don't need a reason to do what they're doing. They don't need a mm -hmm. reason to haunt you. They don't need a reason to try to kill you. Sometimes they hide in bathrooms and pop out of toilets and, and rip you to pieces just because they want to, just because that's where they are. And a lot of ideas of Western ghosts have to do with unfinished business or revenge or you didn't do this in your life, so now this has happened to you, right? Like this cause and effect. That's a big deal in a lot of Western ideology. But Eastern, that's not always the case. Yes, you have different Japanese ghosts that maybe haven't finished what they need to in their life. But oftentimes, you just have these very, very scary entities whose only purpose is to search and destroy. All they want to do is kill you because they want to. It may have nothing to do with you. And it may have nothing to do with anything that you've done in your life that deserves it or not. They just want to come after you. And so that was one thing I thought a lot about prior to writing this book was how to incorporate that level of fear for my characters to think not only like, this is bad. We left our friend playing this game the first time. Now we have to find him. Is it our fault? Is that why this is happening? Are we being punished? But then to also have this feeling of it doesn't matter if we're being punished yeah. or not. They're coming after us. There's nothing we can do besides play this game. Yeah, this book was the first time that I made the connection in my head. I'm sure that other people in the world have made it previously between Western cosmic horror and yokai. And that idea, that idea of just like unknowable apex predators, essentially just yeah. that thing of like, what am I here to do? Fuck your shit up. Yep. And that's it. Yep. That's my purpose. The idea alone is like, I just keep thinking of the line from Hamlet about like shake. So my single state of man, that idea of just like, it's, so antithetical to how human beings move through the world. Yeah. And then, to th and then to throw it at teenagers who are also like how to move through the world is something that you're still discovering as a teenager. God, it's such a whammy. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. Well, and, and that's what is so great. I think about writing young adult. You have these characters who are really dealing with this 
newness and sharpness of experience. They don't have a lot of baggage that makes them feel jaded or that's given them ideas of how to move forward in different scenarios. A lot of things in young adult are experiences that you're having for the first time. You know, you're falling in love for the first time. You're dealing with fear for the first time. You're dealing with grief for the first time. And that's what my characters are doing. They're navigating this world of grief and loss breaking apart as a, the result of their missing friend and then realizing like, holy shit, we have to get back together. We have to work back together in order to survive this. So it's not just the scariness of being thrust into this game world that they had no choice to, but to be in, but also that they are dealing with this like really intense experience of refriending each other after a devastating loss. Yeah, I... I was not prepared for how that stuff hit me in this book. And uh, I mean, I wish I had had this book when I was a teenager. But also, you know, there's something about the experience of these kids growing up, which certainly they are doing as they are seeing, you know, bodies dismembered in front of them. It almost sounds absurd to say this, but like that stuff feels less painful or it did to me anyway than the experience of like outgrowing your friends, feeling betrayed by your friends, looking at your friends and not knowing them anymore. I just loved how honest that felt. Tell me more about that because, I mean, you write for teenagers. You are a YA writer. And there's something about how well you do it that I keep coming back to. There's something about the way you trust them and and treat your audience as complex, as complex as they actually are, as opposed to, I mean, certainly when I was growing up, so much YA felt like it was talking down to me. I think that 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 is that is an issue that that YA authors deal with a lot and hear a lot. That idea that teenagers do not need to be talked down to, that teenagers are incredibly smart <laughs> humans who are capable of handling a whole lot just because they don't have the breadth of experience that adults have doesn't mean they're not capable of processing it and getting into the weeds with it. This book is about big emotions, right? It's about grief, it's about fear. It's about the importance of friendship. It's about connection. And all of these big themes are really crucial parts of growing up. You know, regardless of if you're stuck in a game that is trying to murder you <laughs> or not, this is what we're dealing with at high school every day, right? These are the feelings that we have to process anyway. We're just doing them in this setting. So this game is just this lens for processing that huge swallowing emotion of loss and dealing with all of those swirling feelings that feel like they're just going to suffocate you. It's just done so in, in the terms of a level by level game and, and having to learn to trust and learn to connect and learn to forgive and learn to be angry and have that be okay. I like that structural layering of you're leveling up in the game and as they are going deeper, they are having to also level up emotionally and yeah. confront the things that they didn't want to yeah. or didn't know how to. Yeah. 
while also figuring out like who they are as people, right? Teenagers are such a huge part of figuring out who you want to be in the world, how you want to fit into the world, who you don't want to be. And a lot of this game is about that too. Like, who are you? Okay, when it comes down to it, who are you? Who do you want to be? Who do you not want to be? This game challenges you on all of those levels to develop identity as much as it does survival. Right. What is it like as a writer to tap back into that space and to not color it with knowledge of what comes next? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like that, there's something about this where, you know, an interesting comparison for this book is it, or at least the first half of it, of like... Uh children coming together to fight a big monster and learn about themselves. Yeah. That book never, those kids do not feel like kids really. Like, you know, there's an adult writing and he gets away with it by being able to jump into the future when they are adults. I never, I never once felt that thing that, that pulls me out of YA these days and did as a kid too, of being like, Oh, it's a grown up writing this, you know? Yeah. Well, I think it's also just the world we live in now. Kids have to handle a lot of things that they didn't have to handle a long time ago. And not to say that our lives were so much easier when we were younger or or other kids' lives were so much easier um, when they were younger. But there is an access to information now, which is a lot different than it was when I was growing up. And we have young children that are forced to process things, forcing them to mature in ways that that other generations didn't have to. Obviously, they matured in different ways for different catastrophic events that happened but this is a very interesting time for young adults and and a time that has really forced them to grow up in ways you know that are tough yeah yeah this i'm i uh i related so much to owen like i was the theater kid i was the lead in all the musicals and there's a line that i like out of no oh god it might happen now I just started sobbing uh, like uncontrollably talked about it with my therapist when, when he's talking about acting is surviving and that he pretended he was someone else until he was someone else. Yeah. And I was like, I, yeah, I, I was just like, yep. I know exactly like yeah. that. And that the resonance of that and right. Like that idea that kids have always been, you know, dealing with it. Like, I was growing up in the nineties and early aughts and that like, there's plenty of stuff that was happening then that was jarring, that was throwing us into the world. Yeah. But even in the, even in the most idyllic of circumstances, these moments of being like, I'm an introvert in a family of extroverts who also loves to get on stage and sing and dance in front of his jock friends. Like, yeah, there's something so, there's just something so powerful about, all I was about to say all five I will say all four of the sort of main characters who were following yeah yeah um because I I don't know Ian is a different kind of complicated yeah uh (laughs) for very obvious reasons there's something about the um the pain the honesty of the pain that they are all feeling not in a like not in a way that that needs anything other than time to solve yeah. a little bit. Like, that's just, you know, it, these there are these little moments of like crystalline beauty mm-hmm. in in the midst of unrelenting horror mm-hmm. in this book, 
And having just said that out loud, I'm like, I guess that's kind of just life, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that that meant that hit for you. That is something that I, I hope hits for everybody that reads this book that yes, there are monsters. Yes, there are demons. Yes, there's going to be blood. There's going to be a <laughs> lot of it. But, but also like how life changes you, right? And yeah. when something catastrophic happens, how you come out on the other side matters. It's funny to me that I feel so inarticulate about this. And at the same time, I think maybe that's, strangely enough, that's how a lot of people feel. You know, I love that these kids are in the midst of unrelenting chaos and they're also like, I don't know how to talk about my feelings. You know, <laughs> there's a little bit of like nobody nobody ever does. All you have to do, you know, is fight the monsters and try your best. And there's something really honest about that, about the fact that there's no tidiness yeah i think you really nailed it with it it it's messy like there is a <laughs> certain amount of messiness about this book nothing is clean about it you have physically messy beings monsters chasing you right and then you have really messy emotions which if we could just cut into Kristen's therapy hour right now i feel like it's <laughs> a little reflection of me as a person right is because i when i don't feel safe I swallow all my emotions. I will present with the flattest affect you have ever seen when I don't feel safe. And it's only when I feel safe that I start really just vomiting emotions all over you, right? And that is kind of what's happening in this book. The more chaotic it gets, the more they realize they can't hold it all in and it just starts to spill. And that is how the ending of this book kind of came about too, is because it was like, Hey, we cleaned it up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, we're not done. <laughs> it can't be a neat and tidy ending because it's not a neat and tidy book. Did you always know that this was going to be the first book in a duology? Like, I, I didn't know that when I started reading it. And as I was coming up on the end, I was really getting those sort of classic horror series vibes the sort of like i know what you did last summer kind of thing i i think it was going to be from the beginning mm. because oh this is hard for me too because i love spoilers i love hearing them i love giving them away and i want to respect that not everybody appreciates that <laughs> but i did know from the start of one character that their story would not be complete by the end of this book I, I didn't know exactly how it was going to play out, although it was it was outlined. I didn't know exactly like how that was going to happen for this person, uh, but yeah. that thread made it all the way through all my edits, all my drafts, everything. Yeah, yeah. There's there's I just I just like popped open my Kindle just to flip back and just like there is something. There is something so it's like the best thing about horror, especially like the, the sort of um, the horror that like I grew up being told I couldn't watch and then like sneaking out of the house to watch, you know, yeah. like I know what you did last summer. Yeah. Ho all the Halloween movies, all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies where it's like, there's always more mm -hmm. like the horror always keeps coming back, which again also feels very true to life. Like, a tidy resolution to a horror novel in some ways feels like a little bit of a cop-out 
because there's like there's always more yeah um so that's yeah i just (laughs) i'm like distracted by how much i loved that ending too of just the like (gasps) ah and then like blackout you know (laughs) (laughs) it very much that is a very much an owen ending right like and scene (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah yeah there's um I loved too that all of these kids are like as much as they are, you know, there's the rebel and the jock and the theater dweeb like that none of them are that entirely. I like they are fighting against the structures that society is putting on them a little bit while also embracing because it can be easy to define in that way. Yeah. And I think like that paired really nicely for me with the like ineffable unknowable monstrosity of the game where it's sort of like you can't know any of this you can try to put structures onto it yeah it's not really gonna work yeah yeah Yeah. i love that yeah it's a it's i keep coming back to i I guess to like to rewind a little bit talk to me about create like a different side of the creating of this game of bringing all of this mythology together. Like it's such a good way to play with a bunch of stuff that I imagine you were just like, I'd love to include this in a book. Yeah. You know, tell me about, tell me about bringing the mythology into it and, and which pieces you knew you wanted to use, which pieces you found along the way, which pieces landed on the cutting room floor, you know, all of that. This is a mythology that I grew up knowing and hearing stories about. And I think in Western culture, we get a lot of like Greek mythology and Norse mythology taught in schools and stuff like that. But Japanese mythology is really something. (laughs) It's definitely really something. And yeah, so this is Some of these are stories that are passed down from my grandmother and my mom. The base story, which is the the frame of Japanese mythology in general, the creation story. And that makes it into this as well. The story of Izanami and Izanagi, who were the first entities. They had a spear and they dipped it into the ocean and the islands of Japan rose from the water. They created the world together. They created the sun and the stars. They created all life. But when they were creating fire, it killed Izanami. And so she disappeared and he went to look for her and he finally found her in the darkness of death. And she was so decrepit and rotting that he turned away. He was afraid. He ran from her and locked her down in hell. And so they've, there's always been this clash between life and death since then, between Izanagi, the god of life, and Izanami, the goddess of death. Some of these are things that I just learned later. And I, I was kind of a strange kid growing up and I, I mean it was a little awkward I mean it was not a little <laughs> awkward I remember being young and being at like a party and people going into the bathroom and saying who is it that you can't say in the bathroom is it um, I can't remember Bloody Mary is. yeah yeah, yeah and so you Mary. you know you don't you don't shut the door you don't say the name in the mirror otherwise you see her in the mirror or something and I remember saying like okay but guess what there is this oh, there's one and Kucha's talking going on and you know she wears a mask and she sees you in the bathroom and if she sees you in the bathroom and she says she says do you think I'm pretty if you tell her no then she'll she'll come if you tell her yes then she'll take off her mask and you'll see that her smile is slipped from ear to ear and then she'll make you just like her like and I remember telling the story and people being like <laughs> uh, okay 
<laughs> Note to self, don't invite Kristen to any more sleepovers. But that was like a part of my mythology growing up was, was hearing these stories about these really scary yokai. And again, like we were talking about earlier, a lot of Eastern mythology doesn't have like an answer to these things. There's no cause and effect. Mm-hmm. There's no way to get out of these things. So if you have a ghost that's haunting you in the bathroom, sorry, you're out of luck. You can't do anything to save yourself. It's just going to happen. So yeah, I have ghost stories woven into this, yokai stories woven into this. I have a lot of creatures that are coming into this. I'm working on the second book now. And someone was just asking me, do you have a kappa in your book? I'm like, oh yeah, there's a kappa in the second book for sure. I just love the ways in which built into this book, there's a cosmological, you're not going to get all the answers. Mm -hmm. And I, I like that that, because it feels like it must also free you up as a writer to just kind of like invent relentlessly a little bit and just be like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that thing is. Why? No one knows what that thing is. Yeah. Do you like that power or does that, you know, I, it, it feels to be mythological again. It feels dangerous sometimes to play with that level of one can't know. Like yeah. one stares into the face of that too long and one goes mad. You know? <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> That is 100% true. Mostly, I love it. I will say mostly I love it because, like you were mentioning, like there there really isn't that constraint of like, okay, but the story has to end this way. Okay, but mm-hmm. the myth ends this way. So you have to honor that in some way. A lot of Japanese mythology has this kind of open-ended conclusion to it. So, you know, sometimes it's about teaching a lesson, but for the most part, it's it's like, and now you feel like whatever you experience is how you experience it. So there, there isn't necessarily that constraint to say, oh, but I didn't clean this up the way it should have. Or, oh, this character didn't get this point that they should have gotten from knowing this story, right? I would say I had much more room to play um, because of that, which is great. But like you said, also it's like staring and just and being like, oh, I can do too much. There is no end. where does this stop Uh, the mythology just keeps going Johnny Compton's short stories have appeared in Pseudopod, Strange Horizons the No Sleep podcast He's an HWA member and operates a fantastic podcast called Healthy Fears, which covers how our fears are explored through horror fiction. It's a great show, tapping very much into the things that I feel like I've been pondering in this episode, many of the things that we were talking about around his debut novel, The Spite House. The Spite House is one of my favorite kind of debuts, one that features so much imagination from the writer, giving you a sense of like, yes, this is someone who you will want to read for a long time to come. It is, I suppose, primarily the story about a father on the run with his two daughters. It's unclear at the beginning what exactly they are on the run from or why, but they end up in Texas Hill Country, where Eric, the father, takes a job as a caretaker of sorts for the Masson house. It's a haunted house. It's a spite house built 
Well, for some unknowable reasons, at least at the beginning of the novel. But those reasons come clear as Compton takes us through several different points of view, all shedding light on this strange house, the things that have happened there, the things that have happened to this town and the people who live there, and, of course, the things that have happened to Eric and his daughters. It is a chilling haunted house novel, to be sure, but it is also such an incisive look at the ways that people behave to one another, the ways in which we can turn ourselves and our spaces into something awful, into something spiteful. When Johnny and I sat down, we really got to talking about world building, particularly for debut novelists, and that thing of wanting to put as much of your imagination as possible onto the page. I've always just been fascinated about these kind of little pockets of information that flesh out an environment and suggest a bigger world without having to completely go down that side street. One of my favorite books is Heart-Shaped Box by, by Joe Hill. It has a moment kind of in the later part of the book, the main character, Judas Coyne, witnesses a little ghost story play out in a backyard that is basically unrelated, completely superfluous in a way. And yet, to me, it, it really magnifies this sense of, oh, there are ghosts everywhere. So even though we don't have to go down that path and find out what, what the full story is necessarily with that spirit and what happened, we, we still get this moment. And I can think of so many other stories, movies that have influenced me in that respect. There's a series of Japanese Dracula-adjacent movies that I love. They're all on Tubi, if anybody wants to watch. One of them's called Lake of Dracula. One's called Evil of Dracula. And the first one, which is my favorite of the bunch has something similar where a character in the middle of this whole vampire story stops and tells this ghost story from World War II that, that he remembers. And it just kind of, again, to me, enriches the environment that they're in, where it's like, oh, th there are spooky things. There's this spectral element in a lot of different ways that is completely surrounding this entire world that they've built. And I try not to read any reviews or anything. As Gabino Iglesias and others, Sadie Hartman, have mentioned, reviews are for readers and for yeah. other reviewers, maybe. Some of the reviews that have trickled my way because other people are more interested in them and they want to send them to you. And, <laughs> you know, they, they mean well, but I, I, I literally don't need them. It, you know, Again, they're not for writers. Yeah. But I, I do remember seeing, even in some of the positive reviews, people mentioning, yeah, there's a lot of characters, there's a lot going on. I do think it has a little bit of that debut novel aspect of... What if I never get to do this again? I've got to get all... <laughs> i got to get as much story in here as possible. And so I wanted to instill a lot of that in... I mean, basically anything I write, I, I, I try to give it that sense. But I, I especially wanted to instill it in the Spite House, even though, circling back to my earliest statement, I do kind of feel like that's also somewhat symptomatic of me. You know, this is my first book and feeling like I'm, I want to get it all out there as much as I can. Because if I never get another shot, I want people to see how many ideas I, I have and... <laughs> even if it's in one one book. Yeah, I mean, man, I love that kind of thing too. How did it all start coming together for you? Like, was there a single brick that started it all? Or did you have several pieces that sort of started coming together at the same time? Man, I mean, the earliest portion of the book, not even probably, the, the earliest portion of the book that actually had formed in my mind is what ends up happening with the antagonist, Eunice. I thought of that basically her central curse and the idea behind it and the signature event of her life that forms everything about her character. I thought of that years and years ago, actually, and I was just fascinated by this idea, but I also kind of knew that this was not going to be enough to sustain its own book. 
Although I've, I've got more sympathy for Eunice than I think a lot of other people from beta readers I had. And every everybody kept telling me, you know, man, she's she's the worst. And I was like, I, I don't know. I kind of I kind of see, you know, why she's so terrified and why she's doing <laughs> questionable things. But I also get why people are like, yeah, she, she goes too far. But so I had that initially. And then there were other elements that started to, to come onto it. And I read about spite houses online. And then I was able to graft that onto some of the other ideas I had. There were some Texas history, some Texas hill country history. And I thought this all just dovetails pretty perfectly. I was very excited when I started realizing all of this. I think I can, I can weave it all together. And it's going to allow me to expand the universe, even though the story is confined to this small town and suggest so much more history and so much more possibility. And it all started initially with something that I think was also, you know, if you, you know, when you read the book and you find out about Eunice's curse and her family history, I think some of the things that are part of the book automatically suggest something beyond even a mere haunting. Uh, I'm so glad you mentioned Eunice. Right away, something about her initial description, which is in, you know, I don't know, the first maybe 20 pages or so. There's a line about how she's done a lot of good, like her money has done a lot of good, and that also she's the de facto ruler of this town because she has all of this money. And the complexity there, I mean, I see it in my life. I live sort of right between Woodstock and Kingston on the west side of the Hudson River. Kingston right now is a very, like, hip place for people to flock to. There are artists moving here. It's still moderately affordable. But there's also this guy, one of Warren Buffett's kids, who has this foundation that is pouring money into Kingston. And it's fascinating to watch the ways in which he sort of has this outsized power about what gets to happen here. And there's there is there's so much complexity in all of that. You know, whether it's this mysterious Buffett or Eunice, like they're doing good for the place or for a certain value of good, but quite literally at what cost? And anyway, I just, I really loved that that moral nuance started showing up so early in this book because it did make me have quite a bit more sympathy for her as she then reveals herself to be sort of a miserable, evil person. But it made me think that much harder, that much more anyway, about all of the other characters' moral nuances too. You know, it made it that much easier for me to have, I guess you could say, suspicions about Eric, about Peter. There's this instinct to always want to be able to root for or root against. And I really loved that from the beginning, it was weaved in that that, that you couldn't do that. It, it isn't so simple for any of these people. Right. No, totally. That, that, that was a... Thank you very much for saying that. I have a lot of general, I think, empathy for the characters I write. Pure evil is not necessarily... I think it can be fun. But I haven't found in my own writing a pure evil character that I think is more fun than somebody who you're just kind of a little bit like, I, I can see where they're coming from, even though mm -hmm. I hate them, right? And on the flip side, my protagonist as well, I, you know, there's the idea of the flawed protagonist. I don't even really, I try not to even think of it that way. I just kind of try yeah. to think what seems natural, right? People are naturally, to some degree, a little bit selfish and at the same time capable of being selfless. And so they're going to have competing aspirations, competing drives, and they're going to have to make tough decisions and maybe make the wrong decisions and trying to get people to make the wrong decision for a defensible reason is one of the, the big challenges too, because you know, you, you don't want a character to just be stupid. Right. And at the same time in real life, people are pretty frequently stupid. <laughs> and so you want to relate to that because it, you know, I'm, I know I'm tossing the, the tennis ball back and forth over the net playing against myself with this argument, 
But because, you know, you don't want your characters to be too stupid, but you can defend it by saying, well, people in real life are stupid. But at the same time as well, I'm not necessarily reading, at least for me, and I think a lot of readers, you're not necessarily reading for reality, per se. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to balance all of those things and create characters, whether they're the, the villains or the heroes, that are not an absolute of one thing or the other. Yeah, I think it it makes everything <laughs> I'm I'm trying to decide whether or not I'm walking into a blanket statement that I will someday regret. But I think it makes everything scarier when there are those shades of gray. You know, for every great villain, every Freddy Krueger or Charlie Manx in Joe Hill's Nosferatu, like these monsters, it's kind of delicious. It's like summer popcorn movie stuff. And they are never quite as scary as the Eunices of the world, particularly because I can almost guarantee that a Eunice lives down the street or around the corner from everybody, you know? Maybe not the same scale, but I really dug what you were saying about sort of wanting to wanting to show the ways in which people can be kind of stupid sometimes. And that the reality of, you know, that classic horror question, right? Of like, why didn't they just leave? You do a great job of answering that in this book. As weird shit starts happening, and it absolutely crosses the reader's mind of like, oh, maybe they should just leave. But it's so obvious why they can't. Totally. I mean, it's, it's funny because I used to work in the banking industry, too. And I've, I've written a short story that I haven't had published yet. But like that basically I'm aware of like, you know, um, now as a how long I've been an adult, we've all got mortgages. <laughs> You've got kids. You got to take into account like, uh, well, what's what if I do leave? Where does that leave my kids? What school district might they be going to? <laughs> Some of these things are scarier than. I mean, it depends on. I you know, kind of jokingly say this, but not even really, because I've I've known a lot of people who think their houses are haunted, say they're haunted. I'm not here to tell them one way or the other. But when they describe certain things, I'm like, oh, I get why you don't leave because it's like, yeah, you know, I I get a cold spot here, or I'll hear knocking in the middle of the night. It's like, oh, yeah, well, you're not going to leave your house for that. I'm not, I'm not going to blow up my credit and, <laughs> yeah. and have my kids on the street because, like, you know, like, oh, the pipes are knocking and stuff. Like, hey, if, if that's all the ghost is going to do and maybe, like, occasionally open a curtain when nobody else is in the room or something, yeah. it's just a bunch of annoyance. Like, it's like you got an annoying roommate at that point. Just leaving is not really that simple until something dangerous starts happening, mm-hmm. at which point... Oftentimes that results in like something like Poltergeist where it's like, yeah, well, now we can't leave because our daughter is right. trapped in the nether realm. I always try to remember, I know what genre these people are in. They don't know. The characters don't know they're in a horror story yet. <laughs> I really love thinking about that with this book. And I so rarely get to reread stuff, like even for pleasure. Mm-hmm. And the joy of getting to re-experience the beginning of this book knowing what I know from the back half of the book and seeing the ways in which Eric is so consciously making these decisions of like, well, I've got danger to the right and danger to the left. <laughs> this one seems like it might be less dangerous for now. Like, it's the dilemma. I, lo- I love the idea of, I shouldn't say love the idea because some of my inspiration for it is based in, in, in like, Real-world scenarios that I read, one of my minor fascinations is shipwrecks. There's one, uh, this horrible incident, a ship uh, that sank in the graveyard of the Pacific. The Princess Sophia, and it got stuck on a reef, had enough time to lower all the lifeboats, save all the passengers, because other ships were were there to pick up the, the vessel. But, and it's speculated, because there were no survivors, so we have no idea of knowing exactly what happened. But, in the history in that same area, there had been another ship that had been stuck in a very similar situation, stormy weather coming in, 
They lowered some passengers into lifeboats. The lifeboats immediately were swamped by the waves. The only people who died in that incident were the people who were lowered in the lifeboats. Ugh. So the speculation is the captain was wondering, well, what do I do? Which, like you said, I got danger to the left, danger to the right. Do I keep them on the boat, which is, it's stuck right now, but as long as, you know, if, if we wait out the storm, maybe we'll be safe. Or I, do I put them in the lifeboats, but... You know, we think of the Titanic when you think of lifeboats. That's a very specific, unique situation where the the sea was super calm. Most of the time, lifeboats are not actually built to last for a decent amount of time in turbulent waters. So, do I put my passengers in the lifeboats knowing that this previous incident is out there where this could be the mistake? This could be the thing that kills the only people who are going to die here if I, if I do this too early. Unfortunately, in his situation, he waited too late. The, the storm got worse. The entire ship was sunk. No survivors. But that kind of thing has always fascinated me. The idea of I'm trying to walk this very narrow path of safety for myself and everybody that I care for and everybody that I'm in charge of. And Eric has to try to navigate this. What is the safest route, even though I know that if I take the slightest misstep in either direction, it could spell doom for either myself or for my children. And then at that point, if I do make that misstep, how do I try to save my children? And is there a way for me to, if, if I have to fall on the sword, but they get spared... Is there an availability for that even yeah. um, on top of other complications and secrets that he's keeping? There's something about Eric's arc. Every single time he makes a decision, I was like, I can't see any fault with that. Like thinking about it, what would, what would I do? One of my favorite things about reading horror in particular is a little bit of like, how would I survive this situation? And every single time I'm like, yeah, no, what else could you do? And yet there's that feeling of like, I don't know, almost wishing, wishing that things could be better, knowing that things can't be. Yeah. That it's not that it backs him into a corner, but it does feel, you feel that tension from the beginning, which is really fun. How are you thinking about pacing information, I guess is a way I want to want to dig into this a little further. I wanted to keep things moving at a pretty good clip. You mentioned earlier, there's kind of a, a revelation at a certain point in the story. I wanted it to pace well to where it, it doesn't feel like, like you said, the entire story is really leading up to that necessarily. I wanted mm-hmm. it to feel like less of a, oh my God, shock moment. I wanted it to kind of be like a, I, I was suspecting this and then this kind of solidified it for me. I was deliberately trying to pace it out and trickle out the information like a puzzle, basically. And once that last piece comes in, you're not necessarily surprised. The surprise is almost as th- th- there were no surprises here. It's almost like a, a puzzle that turns into an illusion and I told you this is what the illusion is going to be and you're like yeah you're not gonna be able to pull this off and then you put and it's like oh my god that last piece this this is the illusion yeah this is the thing as advertised and I wanted to pace it out like that I wanted to pace it out with Eric's information Des and her interaction with Stacy as well and pace it out just how, it, how everybody's absorbing this and we get it from Eunice as well pacing out an understanding of how far gone is she and I think really if there's any big reveal in the story not to spoil it but to me the the ultimate villains of the story even more so than Eunice are revealed very late and we find out who the most who the biggest threat potentially is at the same time again I tried to pace it out to where this is kind of a secret that's been hiding in plain sight so then you find out these are the the, the things that you absolutely should have feared all along mm-hmm. and you maybe un- I don't want to say underestimate them but you maybe didn't even realize that this is what was staring you in the face the whole time yeah there's something really fun about that about the way that this book upends expectations 
it kept me on my toes throughout so much of it where, you know, if I thought I knew where this story was going, because I've read a ton of haunted house stories and you get that feeling of like, oh, I think I know what's happening. You always did something even slightly different from what I thought. And I'm right now I'm reading Elizabeth Hand's A Haunting on the Hill to like talk about legendary haunted houses, let alone going back to one. And that feeling of every time you think you know what's going to happen, something goes slightly to the side or or dramatically to the side. And I suppose I just want to know what you think about haunted houses and working both within and outside of the traditional parameters of the haunted house story. Oh, man. I mean, I love that you brought up Elizabeth's book because I mean, my opening chapter, my, my opening paragraph is my attempt to do my best impression of the haunting of, of Hill House. Yeah. And, you know, Hill yeah. House, not sane. The idea the house is alive and it's also insane. And we just kind of... Ex- extrapolated from there like all the layers <laughs> that the opening paragraph <laughs> opens up of what you're getting into and it says it right up at the front i, I tried to get into that element obviously in the, in the opening to set this idea that my house could be metaphorically speaking alive and then as the story progresses you're wondering is that is that strictly a metaphor <laughs> or is, is this you know is, is, is are the ghosts haunting the house is the house haunting the ghosts these are the kind of things i, I kept in mind the beautiful thing about a haunted house, I think, is that it, you can kind of go in so many different directions with it. You can kind of have a wide open playground and so many different people have different interpretations of it. Whenever you look into the huge written legacy of haunted houses, some of them are built around tragic ghosts. Can we bring justice to the spirit that's plaguing the house? And if you can find out where they were buried or what the secret is in the house, put the ghost to rest, so to speak, and let them move on to the next plane of existence, whatever that may be. Or is it a malevolent, hostile ghost? Is it not even necessarily, strictly speaking, a ghost, but a spirit in a very different sense? You know, one of my favorite books is The Elementals by Michael McDowell. Yeah. Which has a fantastic, I mean, kind of, I think a lot of people consider that a haunted house story. And it is, but it's haunted by something that, as you progress through the story, you're wondering, is this really a ghost? And then, again, is it... Is it something haunting the house? Is it the house haunting whatever's inside? Is it the location in general? It was interesting. John Carpenter is my favorite horror director. I always found it interesting that he kind of thought of Halloween as a, a little bit of a haunted house story, which I don't think most people would think of it as. There's this sense of what he's trying to convey is in the neighborhood, it's the haunted house. It's not a haunted house movie, but for the people of Haddonfield, the uh, the, the house where uh, Michael first, the, the Myers house where Michael killed his, his sister. That's the place, hey, you don't go in there. Something horrible happened there. And the idea of a neighborhood or a city or a town having that place, which I think a lot of us can relate to. Is this place even really like that haunted? Or how much of the haunting is, is about the spirits and how much of it is is just kind of in my head? And how much am I contributing to that? How much am I feeding into what the haunting may be? And how much am I energizing the house? So many of these different things that I wanted to incorporate. And then on top of all that, you get to have the fun of something like House of Leaves, yeah. where you also have a, a house that's just weird. And so that's one of the fun things about it being a spite house is it architecturally, the one I, I you know created is inspired by real, multiple real life spite houses. And a lot of them are just architecturally weird. They're built strange. So on top of everything else, this is just a strange place to be in. It would just feel physically uncomfortable and bizarre. It's so good. Like, and immediately everyone can think of a space that they've been in where you're like, something about this is off. The angles are wrong. The height is whatever it is, or even something that is as 
absurd almost is like, what the fuck is this hallway doing on the outside of the house? Like, this is, why is this here? And the, the way that it unsettles our bodies. Yes. Tell me more about the other spite houses that you were looking at. You know, I've seen some of the more well-known ones in the world, the the little teeny skinny house in New York. There are some of them that you see and you're sort of like, oh, it's almost cute. And then you learn the story about it and then you understand why the term exists. But yeah, tell me about looking into these these very weird real places. It was a lot of fun. My spite house is abnormally thin and four stories tall, just like the skinny house. The, the background of why the house was built was borrowed in part from a different spite house that has a story of two different brothers and, and the circumstances that surround the, the Masson family is, is in, inspired very much by that and the, the, the conflict between these brothers. There was another spite house that I saw that it didn't quite have, it wasn't a full hallway, but it had this kind of outcropping floating over another building and that was the only way that they could build the house. And I saw that and I just thought this would be amazing if the house has this. And then from there, it's like, well, what's the reasoning for the house having this? And once I pieced together that not only can I determine the reasoning, but also use that reasoning as a symbol of a flaw of, of Peter Masson in, in terms of the idea behind a spite house even. And his reason for building this hallway, some of what is actually motivating him, even if he's in denial about it, he's kind of been blinded to his his anger at this point, even at the expense of his own family members who originally he said that he's, he's thinking this is what I'm doing this for, for the future generations, for the, for their legacy. And now he's at a point where he's so distracted from that, that he's willing to build this bizarre exterior feature of his house that should not exist. And so from there, once I realized that it was like, Oh, well that hallway now has to be like basically the epicenter of a lot of the horror that's going to, that's going to take place in the story. Because to me, it, it even more than, the rest of the house, it, it represents like the commitment he has to doing the wrong thing. And so that to me kind of sums up the whole idea of a spite house. But every time I'd, I'd bring it up to people who are unfamiliar with spite houses, which is a lot of them, I, I would describe it and maybe they'd look it up and contact me later. That I can't believe people can be this petty. And I can't believe you, you would dedicate this much of yourself, your time and your energy to not only building the house, but then oftentimes living in the house. Yeah. And it's like, man, I'm, I'm really going to commit this much of myself to expressing my distaste for another person or, or entity to the extent that I'm going to basically, I'm willing to do damage and inconvenience, further inconvenience at minimum damage at maximum to myself in order to in some way harm or just express how much I wish to harm you. So that's kind of all what I combined into my, tried to combine into my spite house. As I was prepping for this interview i was reading some interviews that you've done recently and i've seen you speak on this a little bit but i've been really curious to ask you broadly speaking about your how you feel about the supernatural in sort of our (laughs) our real world there's so much obvious supernatural stuff happening in this book and then there's plenty of the sort of uncertain ways in which human beings can impact themselves and their surroundings by thinking a certain way for a certain amount of time. And if you look at that from one direction, is that supernatural? But if you look at it from another, it's just human nature. And I'm so curious about how you experience the supernatural. I'm, I'm glad you asked. And it's, always, <laughs> it's always fluid for me. So it's interesting that you're like, oh, yeah, I've, I've read what you've said about this before because... How I was feeling in that moment might not be how I'm feeling a day later. 
but just generally as consistently as as I can be about it. I've quoted Sapphire Sandalo, who she's she's been wonderful to me and she's helped me out in, in a couple of different ways early on before I even got the book deal. She has been involved in paranormal investigation. She's got a wonderful podcast that listens to people's ghost stories. And at one point she mentioned, it's not about necessarily whether you believe in the supernatural or believe in ghosts, it's about whether you believe in people. Mm. So I try to keep that in mind. I've heard so many different people's stories about the supernatural that aren't necessarily my own experience. And so for me, I I just think it's not my place to tell them what they experienced. And so I I try to get into that zone of, I'm just going to believe in the person here. I've encountered and met so many different people, other writers, people who have worked in the business world, medical professionals even, such a wide variety of people who have their own supernatural stories. And I linger in this kind of quasi-agnostic, somewhat speculative, but soft speculative terrain where I've been in active denial about (laughs) some things that I've seen (laughs) that uh, I've described to other people. And I'm like, oh yeah, there's this incident where I saw this little ghost girl in my house when I was like a teenager. And I was pointing towards her because I thought she was my mom. And it was sort of the corner of my eye. I thought she was my mom. Turns out she was a a ghost girl instead. And I'm pointing toward her. And then I freeze (laughs) because she vanishes immediately. (laughs) And I was just stuck frozen pointing at nothing for several seconds. And then I just told myself that, uh, you know what? My brain just had a, a misfire. You know, the, the circuitry in my brain went a little haywire. I just hallucinated. And then I left it basically basically at that. I, I did a, a very half-hearted, not even half, like a, uh, a one-eighth-hearted <laughs> attempt to research. Has there ever been like a little girl that lived here or anything that died? Once I didn't find out information, I was like, you know what? This is where uh, evil stuff starts happening to me. You start digging too deep. <laughs> You're right. This is this is when this is when you get caught up. Uh-huh. You start going to libraries and researching. Yep. <laughs> yep. You start visiting graveyards. Next thing you know, you know this this is how bad things happen. To <laughs> so I'm just gonna leave it be. And I, I still remember that incident. And I've told people who are ardent believers or who had their own experiences, and they're like, "You are just completely in denial. What do you mean your brain was misfiring? That's you saw something." Yeah. And I'm just like, "Look, man, I'm not here to say one way or the other. Maybe this is my own weird." disbelief that is illogical but i just hold on to my idea that our brains are weird mysteries of their own and maybe i i just my preferences as my interaction with the supernatural is less about how i feel about it and more about trying to respect within reason how others feel about it and trying to be a receptacle of a little bit of patience and understanding and not be dismissive even though i'm sort of a skeptic even though i'm, I'm also potentially in denial about something that <laughs> i've actually seen I mean, it feels like a good place for a horror writer to live, you know? I mean, you know, it, it does kind of, I mean, it allows me to engage with it in a way that is sincere and committed. Yeah. And the older I get, I think, I look back on things that I've, the, the type of creative works that I've disliked. And what I'm realizing is like, for me personally, the stuff that I dislike seems insincere or feels like it doesn't want to commit to the idea. The stuff that I, I truly dislike versus the things that I'm, even if I'm not, a big fan of it but i'm thinking you know this this actually i can see the merit i can see why people like it usually has a level of commitment and sincerity which doesn't necessarily mean it has to be serious the movie airplane one of my favorite movies of all time hilarious but they're committed to the jokes yeah. and they're sincere about making this thing funny it's not we've seen other spoof movies that are very just like obviously really just not even trying to make jokes here these are just references right to things and you're hoping that people like just laugh because of the reference you're not actually committed and sincere about it and so this allows me to engage in a in a way that is sincere and committed with the supernatural 
while still maintaining some arm's length that, if nothing else, I think is probably just, if the supernatural is out there, it hopefully keeps me safer. Like I said, when you, <laughs> you start disappearing when you start investigating stuff. If fiction and, and nonfiction have told me anything. I struggled this whole season in the lead up to this episode to think of a third guest. In some ways, I was almost overwhelmed with options. I could talk to another therapist. I could talk to somebody like Dylan Marin, working with people who hate online. I could talk to somebody about ghosts, about fears. But over the course of producing this season, I've been struck by the ineffable, by the ways in which art can make you feel, and how that is not something necessarily that can be explained, that it's almost sometimes not worth talking about. So I thought I would leave you with a poem, Come In, by Robert Frost. As I came to the edge of the woods, thrush music, hark! Now if it was dusk outside, inside it was dark. Too dark in the woods for a bird, by sleight of wing to better its perch for the night, though it still could sing. The last of the light of the sun that had died in the west still lived for one song more in a thrush's breast. Far in the pillared dark thrush music went, almost like a call to come in to the dark and lament. But no, I was out for stars. I would not come in. I meant not even if asked. And I hadn't been. Well, so doth the bell toll for this season, my friends. It has been a blast, an honor to guide you on this little voyage, as it always is. I'm so deeply grateful to all of you for listening. I'm so in awe of the incredible talents that I got to talk to this season. I hope you enjoyed. I hope the next time I see you, whether it's on the airwaves, actually visually, or some other way besides, I hope that the next time we find one another, that you are well and safe and reading good books. I'll see you soon. This has been Tor Presents Voyage Into Genre, a co-production with LitHub Radio. I'm your host, Drew Broussard. Music was by Danny Lencioni of Evelyn. Mixing, mastering, and production courtesy of Stardust House. Thanks very much to the teams at Tor and at LitHub, and to all of you for listening. <laughs>